Hello, my name is Justin McLuhan. I'm here today with Will Slough. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, it's Shocktober. <laughs> the final edition before October says goodbye and we have to return to like art house films. <laughs> but until then, we're talking today about Scream Queens. What is a Scream Queen, Will? A Scream Queen is exactly what it sounds like. A woman who has made a career as an actress in horror films, or at least made a significant mark as an mm-hmm. actress in horror films. Uh, Scream Queen was popularized when slashers came into play, mostly because it would be actors that would play the same thing over and over and over again in film after film. And it's often a term that people for a long time found kind of derogatory, mm-hmm. and they didn't want to be associated with, especially the first person we're going to talk about, Jamie Lee Curtis. Who I think is kind of the prototypical scream queen. I think a lot of people uh, use her as like the starting point for it. And by the way, I think one of the interesting things about this topic is that horror has or is often perceived as having a problematic relationship with the female gender. Well, it does. Yes, (laughs) it does. Um, And the role that the scream queen plays is... A complicated one for many reasons. Like I uh, talked about before, of it being a derogatory term, like, Scream Queen are usually associated with a number of things, is that they are conventionally attractive, Mm -hmm. and that they are often the victim who is menaced throughout the film. They're not normally associated with, like, oh, the Scream Queen is the hero of the picture, who um, is the star, and she drives the plot, and at the end, she solves everything. No, that's not what a Scream Queen is defined by. I mean, Scream is right there in the title, which denotes fear and something coming after them that would cause them to flee. So, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, daughter of Janet Lee and Tony Curtis, (laughs) who, uh, much to her uh, mother's chagrin, ended up starring in a little film called Halloween. Hey, I'm Tony Curtis. Welcome to (laughs) Delta Laser Light Special Edition Classics. Today, we're celebrating Orson Welles with one of his great films, Mr. Arkadin. So, for people that don't know what Will was just doing there, um, uh, Tony Curtis used to introduce, I guess, VHS tapes and laser discs? Yeah, Yeah, DVDs of just public domain movies. And when he would be clearly reading off a cue card and he would have a white suit with and black gloves black gloves I guess he's going to go murder someone <laughs> yeah. soon uh, Jamie Lee Curtis actually starred in a compilation film of universal horror monster movie trailers that was directed and edited by John Landis oh wow she actually thanks John Landis for um, having any kind of career based on that and he cast her in Trading Places and that was the movie with which she shed the Scream Queen image along with other things but for a while she kind of struggled with it because after after Halloween, she ended up acting in a little film called Terror Train. Right, which we both watched this week. And we also, I think, watched Prom Night. Yes. Or at least I did. I've seen Prom Night a long time ago. Both of them exploitation films, mm-hmm. being that they were made in the era where there was a tax shelter. So a lot of people came to make uh, genre films and collect money. And if the films got released, eh, sure. That's good. Prom Night and Terror Train both feature top build a slumming Hollywood sort of star. In Terror Train, it being Ben Johnson, Academy Award winner from The Last Picture Show. And in Prom Night, it's Leslie Nielsen, (laughs) the same year as Airplane. Academy Award winner in, hmm. Uh, Dracula Dead and Loving It. (laughs) That's right. So Terror Train, it's fine. Like, there's a reason I hadn't watched it up until now. So Terror Train, it takes place on a train where terror unfolds. 
a fraternity and a sorority rent the train so that they can go on a trip. And they also rent a magician played by David Copperfield. Oh, wow. He probably just shows up for uh, like two days of shooting, right? Nope. He's in the whole thing. <laughs> David Copperfield is the th- basically the third lead in this if movie. If you love watching magic on screen, you have to see this movie because it's just David Copperfield doing just tricks the entire way through. And you know, every time he showed up, I kind of rolled my eyes a bit. It's like, oh no, more more friggin' magic. But then he'd do a trick. And, and you'd I'd, be like, whoa, how'd they do that? <laughs> kinda, yeah. <laughs> so Jamie Lee Curtis is in, within this ensemble, but like most of these slasher films, all of her friends get being knocked off one by one. And because this is New Year's Eve, it's a, a costume party? AKA they wanted it to look like Halloween, but they didn't want to copy it exactly. And the killer is wearing a Groucho mask. For most of the right time. Then he switches into a lizard costume and then the generic old man mask. And everyone remembers that, uh-oh, three years ago, they taunted a nerdy boy. With a horrible prank where they put a dead body in the bed that the nerdy boy thought Jamie Lee Curtis was in. Yeah. And the uh, guy... As far as the film seems to indicate, got tangled in a bunch of, like, (laughs) sheets, and that's all that really happened to him, and he went insane. I didn't really like this movie very much. I didn't hate it either. It's fine. It's there. I, in fact, did watch it on a train. (laughs) Did you? Um, And And you're like, the killer could be any one of us. I think the fact that I was not troubled in any way speaks to something lacking in the film. Well, it's not particularly suspenseful. It's not particularly violent, except for one out of nowhere head rolling out of um, Mm an overhead compartment. It feels like it was cut down to get an R rating. Yes. And it feels like uh, there's not really any focus. It has the problem that a lot of slasher movies have is that we have to hang out with this bunch of jerks like mm. they did a horrible thing and they're being picked off within the confines of the movie universe this is all we know about them so we're like sure you can be killed and a lot of slasher filmmakers and producers and writers think that this is what people want to see is that people that are jerks be murdered but the problem with that is that i have to hang out with these jerks for like 70 minutes yeah exactly <laughs> uh and jamie lee curtis she does what she did in halloween and, and as far as a like fine girl as it was popularized by Carol Clover. She is very proactive in the final moments. What is the final girl? The final girl is, as its title indicates, the final survivor in a slasher film. After all her friends have been murdered, the final girl will be chased for a while, and then in the final moments will pick up a weapon most of the time and just decapitate the um, slasher character as popularized as something like Friday the 13th. Well, John Carpenter's Halloween is kind of the quintessential final girl, Mm -hmm. because that's one where Jamie Lee Curtis is kind of the most virginal of the four or five uh, victims in the movie mm-hmm. and she's I guess the most tomboyish and so there's been a lot of theory over the years about how the the, the androgynous quality works yeah. to her advantage as you have a, sex as a, you die yeah. in a slasher film and what's funny is that like most people use Halloween as a starting point and that film was written by John Carpenter and the producer Deborah Hill mm. and they've been very clear like if that is in the movie and it's perceived that way, mm-hmm. it's not on purpose. Mm-hmm. And that it's a weird subconscious thing or people are reading into it. And as slasher films went along, I think that the genre kind of le- leads someone to go, oh, you can have sex and then you get murdered mm-hmm. because you give things that young teenage boys want and then you give the other things young teenage boys want. So they go in together. I think I've said this before on the podcast, but do you remember the Michael Bay produced Friday the 13th? Yes. 2010. And the first 15 minutes, which plays out like a miniature Friday the 13th film. But in that movie, the tables had turned somewhat that the people who died first in that were like the virgins. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's interesting because these movies are clearly playing off some insecurity in the teenage audience. 
1980, it might have been insecurity around the idea of premarital sex. But in 2010, it's insecurity around the idea of what if my friends find out I'm a virgin. But Jamie Lee Curtis in Terror Train, I don't think she's portrayed as that virginal final girl. Right. She's shown to be um, sexually active. She's very proactive throughout the story. And even at the end, it's her constantly making decisions, like whether it be like she puts herself in a cage or she hides and she uses a sword to get the killer. The final like moment where she takes out the villain that's coming after her is not one of those like, oh, in a moment of adrenaline, I actually was able to defeat him. It is a, oh, I thought this out and I figured it out and I was able to take them down, which is different and is what I prefer in slasher films, even though it's not the norm. I guess she's closer to the final girl archetype in Prom Night, where she is a more tomboyish character and who loves the disco dance. (laughs) Yeah, I liked that. And in the movie, she has this whole rivalry over this boy with this uh, more glamorous, more popular high school girl. I feel like Prom Night is popular because it's very iconic, but as a film itself, it's uh, it's all right. Good, good premise. Yeah, you know. But I, I think I, about the premise is like Prom Night. You know what kids do on Prom Night, right? Like they fuck. It, exactly. It's got the, the the term Prom Night has so many connotations to it. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you have a director, Paul Lynch, a director who I really like kind of phoning it in because like he doesn't really want to make a slasher film and the kind of um, tropes of the genre aren't in place so it feels a little bit I don't know wishy-washy it's true Paul Lynch would come into his own many years (laughs) later with the Andrew Dice Clay Shannon Tweed thriller No Contest which I genuinely like we watched it together (laughs) I mean I would we've talked about doing an episode on Paul Lynch because I think that his early career is very interesting he did like a regional wrestling drama he did a drama about like a um, uh, country musician and then eventually the uh, need to pay rent and take care of his family took over and he just went into like a B and C movie um, hell. Maybe we should do him and Sidney J. Fury yeah, on the exactly. same episode. But they were friends. So there you, uh, it, it, there you go. It's perfect. So Jamie Lee Curtis, she didn't actually last that long as a screen queen. It was something that she fought kind of valiantly against. Um, she would go on to star co-star in Road Games, which is directed by Richard Franklin, which is a great movie that stars Stacey Keach, takes place in Australia. She kind of shows up 40 minutes in as a hitchhiker who befriends Stacey Keach. Because Jamie Lee Curtis, as an actor, is just so charming, Mm -hmm. and she can portray such strength so easily that it's obvious that Hollywood is like, well, we don't know what to do with a woman like this, so we'll confine you to smaller roles. And also, don't you just do horror films? Yeah. Because if you look at her career, she's done a lot of movies, but she doesn't have as many starring roles as you think she would. Mm. I love her, by the way. Oh, I she's, think she's great. great. And I think like A Fish Called Wanda is... It's so funny. It, it's so funny. It's the perfect movie because it, it totally gets her as a presence, you know, putting her next to John Cleese. Mm-hmm. Like John Cleese is this very buttoned up, very repressed British archetype. And then she has this loose American quality and, and, th- and this easy sexuality. You and know? just to listen to some anecdotes that our pal Peter Kaplowski said about just hanging out with Jamie Lee Curtis, like backstage before going on to present the new Halloween movie. She sounds exactly like you hope she sure. would. We both saw the new Halloween movie. And I think that that film is also making people rediscover her and going like, whoa, like she just got cast in Ryan Johnson's new movie, Knives Out. It's fantastic. And you watch her in that film and you go, well, why hasn't she been acting? Yeah, she's great in, in the new decades. Yeah. 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 So while Jamie Lee Curtis is someone that may have started the Scream Queen kind of archetype, but 
quickly tried to get rid of it as fast as possible. We wanted to jump back as well and talk a little bit about women in horror films that were defined by their presence. And the one that came to my mind automatically was Barbara Steele. Mm-hmm. Barbara Steele being a British yeah, actor. British actress, but we most associate her with her work in Italy. Yeah, because she uh, starred in films like uh, The Long Hair of Death, Nightmare Castle, uh, Castle of Blood. Black Sunday. That Most importantly, the yeah. Mario Bava film. And then later came to Hollywood and made some films with Roger Corman. Mm-hmm. Most memorably, The Pit and the Pendulum. Hey, let's not forget Joe Dante's Piranha as well. Right. Oh, and also she was in a movie called, uh, let me see if I'm getting the title right, Eight and a Half. <laughs> That's right. By Fellini. <laughs> Barbara Steele is an interesting case in that all the films she's most famous for, she's not even dubbed by her own voice. Mm. Like, even when it came to America and it was released uh, theatrically, somebody else came in and did her voice. Because by most accounts, she was very dismissive of the horror genre. Also, I think Italian movies, like, well into the 80s were just shot without sound. Exactly, yeah. So uh, you watch Black Sunday, and like, how would you define Barbara Steele as a film presence? A lot of it is, well, it's her her face, Mm -hmm. and specifically, I think it's her eyes. I mean, she's got an incredible face. Yes. So she's got these incredible cheekbones and this really wide grin or, or wide smile, but her eyes look like a Margaret Keene painting or something. Mm. They're very big and there's so much that can be conveyed in those eyes. You know, she can do naivete. She can be vulnerable. She can be sad, but she can also be like really sadistic and, it, and it's all communicated in those eyes. And oftentimes filmmakers will give her these like big painted eyebrows as if to emphasize it even more. I think that directors glommed onto that fact very quickly in Italy because her career in those horror films was often defined by her playing dual roles. Mm. Oftentimes the aggressive and the victim Mm -hmm. and that they figured out that she can do both and it's interesting to see it play across her face where like in Long Hair of Death she can play the innocent person that's murdered and then come back as like this horrible monster that um, manipulates everybody around her. And there's something very electric to her like Mm -hmm. it doesn't seem like she's playing naive or that she's playing sadistic. While in Black Sunday she plays a witch character that is supposed to be the embodiment of kind of like pure evil and when she comes back there's something undeniably alluring about her presence. Like, you want to see her on screen just doing her thing. Well, like so many so-called scream queens, she fell into it accidentally. Mm -hmm. She was working at a theater company in Glasgow, so the story goes. When the lead actress of a play fell sick, she came in. She was apparently working on the set or something. I don't know how much of that is true, but she performed in the play, caught the attention of a talent scout for an organization called the Rank Organization, you know, worked in mostly undistinguished roles in Britain until Mario Bava saw her picture in a magazine and cast her in Black Sunday, and the rest was history. Ah, Mario Bava. He's got an eye for talent. Cameron Mitchell, Barbara Steele. (laughs) (laughs) And Barbara Steele, the kind of history around her is really sad because it defines what happens to Scream Queens is that, again, it's such a dismissive label, right? Mm -hmm. Is that for a long time, horror films are trash. And to be a Scream Queen is the queen of horror films. So you probably can't act and you probably can't do anything else. So I'm sorry, we don't have any roles for you. I read an interview with her in The Guardian newspaper from 2011, where she was quite dismissive of her horror movies and she was more eager to talk about Fellini and uh, she didn't really get Mario Bava but then it talks about how you know later in the night she went to introduce one of the horror movies I think Black Sunday Mm -hmm. and she just sort of like came alive in front of the fans and and was full of stories and anecdotes I mean she even uh 
started a movie directed by Michael Reeves, the director that only made three pictures, most famously Witchfinder General. Mm-hmm. So it's like she worked with some of the best. She worked with Ricardo Freda. She worked with Antonio Margaretti. Oh, of course. One uh, of the best. She worked with uh, uh, Mario Keanu, which like those are all famous Italian horror directors. But unfortunately for a long time, like the Italian film was dismissed as like trash that you'd throw on like the bottom half of a drive-in double bill. I believe Black Sunday played in America on a double bill with a little movie called Little Shop of Horrors. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> and I, I wonder if it played first or second. Probably. Probably first. Probably first. I would yeah. hope so, yeah. <laughs> and Barbara Steele, because of that, was never able to transition to anything else. Like, there's eight and a half. And other than that, it's... She was in Pretty Baby, the Louis Maul film. She was cut out of Pretty Baby. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've never seen Pretty Baby, sorry. And, uh, like, that's most of her career after those Italian horror films is her kind of appearing in films, either relegated to the background or cut out. For example, her husband at the time, James Poe, wrote one of the major roles in They Shoot Horses, Don't They?, the Sidney Pollock film based on the famous book, for her... And because of, like, complications, she wasn't able to act in it. And so it went to somebody else who gained so much acclaim for it. She was, though, great as the sadistic warden in Caged Heat. (laughs) So there's that. Wheelchair-bound warden. I sat in front of her once uh, at the Udo Kier event. Really? Do you remember when he came to town, like, I want to say 10 years ago? (laughs) Vaguely. I don't think I saw... Wow. Yeah, I, I have no story other than that. But listen, folks, if you sat in front of Barbara Steele at an event, would you say it on your podcast? (laughs) I would, yes. Yes, you would. (laughs) I mean, even to this day, like, when she shows up in movies, it's often as like, hey, look, it's Barbara Steele. And she doesn't get to say anything. She was in Ryan Gosling's Gosling's directorial debut. (laughs) uh, I don't remember what it was called. Lost River, I think. That's right. And she had no lines. Of course. (laughs) But moving on uh, from Barbara Steele to the 80s Scream Queen. Now, this is where it was popularized. And this is where the actors were taking it and using it as a badge of honor because we're going to talk about a little actor called Linnea Quigley. Another moniker for this genre of Scream Queen might be Video Vixen. (laughs) Video Vixen? Haven't you heard that phrase before? No, I've never heard that term before. Seems like it was popularized by someone like, um, I don't know, Penthouse or something like that. Yeah, or Joe Bob Briggs or somebody like that. I didn't make it up, folks. Yeah, no, I believe you. I mean, like, people like Fredolin Ray and Jim Wynorski were making films, or David Dakota were making films with Linnea Quigley, and they quickly took Scream Queen as, like, a badge of honor. Jim Wynorski and Fredolin Ray even directed a film called Scream Queen Hot Tub Party (laughs) as, like, a 60-minute party video that you could rent at the uh, video store. What was in it? Was it just... I I think it's just them hanging out, uh, Linnea Quigley and a bunch of other uh, actors. It's... And you could watch it and pretend you're at the hot tub party. (laughs) It's a little weird to talk about someone like Linnea Quigley because you look at her IMDb and she has, like, 250 credits. Mm -hmm. But to actually narrow down and find the great movies that she starred in is a little bit more difficult. She's most popular for films like Return of the Living Dead, where she plays the character who gets naked and dances on a uh, grave. There's also, of course, Night of the Demons. Where her death scene involves her opening up a bunch of lipstick and putting it through her breast. So I think those two are the most famous ones. Mm -hmm. But... More representative of her career, I think, is a a 1988 film called Nightmare Sisters. By uh, a favorite of mine, David Dakota. David Dakota, uh, you know, in his heyday in the 1980s, of course, he directed Sorority Babes at the Slimeball Bolarama. Which also starred Linnea Quigley. uh, Beach Babes from Beyond, Creepazoids, many films. Linnea Quigley's in that one as well. But 
he may be more familiar to contemporary audiences as the director of A Talking Cat, Cat? as well as dozens, yes, dozens of very, very low budget movies. Many of them homoerotic. Yes. Many of them featuring some faded stars and faded Many of them that start with numbers because David Dakota figured out very quickly that the numbers are at the top of the VOD chart. Yeah, so he had this series of movies called, I really encourage people to watch something from this series, 1313, where they would all be shot at the same Hollywood mansion, and they would usually involve a lot of hunky dudes in tidy whities mm-hmm. They never got naked. Hunky dudes or twinks. Yes. Never got naked. They're all like... Basically PG movies. Yes. Um, And there would always be one kind of aging scream queen in them. So I love David Dakota as a person. We've talked about Mm -hmm. on this podcast. We've talked to him. I will buy a Blu-ray just because his commentary is on it because he loves movies and he knows almost everything about movies. The reason that there's these aging scream queens or aging actors in his movies is because he genuinely likes these people. Well, I remember talking to him once and we were talking about Christine DeBell from Alice in Wonderland and The Big Brawl. And this is an actress who went out of the game to raise a family and then decided to come back and just sort of sent her resume around. And David Dakota called her and said, are you Christine DeBell uh, from from uh, Meatballs and everything? Uh, and she's like, yeah, you know who I am? He's like, yeah, you're a star! <laughs> yeah. and, and she's in 12 of his movies. And how can you not love a guy like that? He's so you know? genuine about his love and the way that he was able to continue to make movies. I mean, he started in pornography mm-hmm. uh, and then he moved on to making a film called Dreamniac. Uh, I think there's some extra syllables in there. Worked a lot with Full Moon Pictures. And the reason is that he could deliver movies fast Mm -hmm. and cheap, and they look fast and cheap. And this is why this is a big, long ramble to get back to uh, Linnea Quigley, is that as far as David Dakota movies goes, was very amicable. She was nice. She'd do whatever he asked, and he wouldn't ask anything too tough. But, like, that's why he continued to work with her. And unfortunately, the David Dakota films are rough. Like, watching them now, most people would turn them off after 30 minutes, I think. I find David Dakota more interesting in the 2010s. Yes. Like, now. Because that- it's pure. It's his pure id. Yeah, exactly. And he's created a style now that's entirely his own. Nightmare Sisters, I didn't enjoy it. It's, it's barely a movie. Well, it was shot in four days on short ends and shot on standing sets, I think from Sorority Babes at the... Slimeball-O-Rama, yeah. yeah. And it's essentially the story of the three, I'm putting in huge air quotes, ugly uh, women, and they're played by Scream Queens, uh, Linnea Quigley, Michelle Bauer, and Brink Stevens. What a cast. All three of them together. Uh, all uh, David Dakota, Fred Olin Way, and Jim Wynorski mainstays. And... They find a crystal ball that raises a succubus, which makes them beautiful. And by that, they just look like they normally do, but their tops are off for the entire film. So yeah, they're the three kind of nerdiest sisters at the sorority, and they invite the three nerdiest boys at the fraternity to come over one night. I mean, I won't get into all the complications of the plot. <laughs> well, there's not that many complications. But, but they're so dumb that I don't even really want to waste breath on it. And looking at Linnea Quigley as a performer and why she would have been as popular as she was, you can tell that she's very game. She's willing to like act dumb and like a nerd. 
she's willing to sing a song because she was in a band herself. She, okay, but what is she really willing to do? Uh, she's willing to take her top off. Okay, and this, I mean, I really like her in this movie. Mm-hmm. I think she's very fun in this movie. She is. In every she, film she, I've seen, she's very yeah, fun. Yeah, I like her, and I think she really commits to the nerdy side of the character mm-hmm. in, in a way that's very fun. It's like it's like kind of a Jerry Lewis nutty professor <laughs> yes, exactly. thing. Um, the main attraction of Nightmare Sisters is that there's a long bubble bath scene with the three of them. They're nude for a long time of the film. Yeah, and they're soaping each other, and they're uh, pouring water on each other, and, and that's the thing. And when this movie played on cable... They had a whole other scene. They had alternate scenes where they were closed. Uh, it would play on like um, Up All Night, the yeah. uh, cable show, which I'm I was never familiar with. Uh, I mean, David Dakota, just to describe like what his movies are on the commentary for Nightmare Sisters, he quotes a um, review admonishing him for having a security cam uh, directing style, and he's like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! I take offense to that. Security cams sometimes move left to right, and my camera they're just <laughs> static straight ahead." Like, he, I think he's aware. Of of the movies that he makes mm-hmm. and he has fun with them even though that they're not always fun to watch mm-hmm. but I mean Nightmare Sisters I feel like if I had rented it when it had came out it would have blown my mind because there was no way to see this kind of stuff and it's in such a pure form in a movie like this well I mean if I had been 12 and yes. I'd seen this bubble bath scene I would have been like whoa my god yeah. and like David Dakota's <laughs> having fun with it it's barely a horror movie like these women are supposed to turn into monsters with like fang teeth who then bite the dicks off men but all that really happens is the men go oh and then they turn into smoke yeah i found it like a painless watch yes you know i mean do i own the blu-ray because of the commentary tracks of course well, i do because cinephile. david dakota is so much fun to listen to and his experiences and how this movie got to be and Leia quickly like we said it's always fun to watch in movies like her two main roles uh night of the demons and uh return of living dead show like a s- small side of like her charming stuff but Mm. they are supporting roles like I even sat down and watched Linnea Quigley's horror workout this was (laughs) an hour long video directed by Kenneth J. Hall who wrote Nightmare Sisters Mm -hmm. and it's just her just kind of being a goof doing exercise the film starts with her in the shower camera pans down to her breasts like that's what everybody wants to see I guess yeah and then you see clips from her movies and she's just a goofball in a film that feels 900 hours long so we didn't really prepare to talk about this person but you know one of the appeals of Linnea Quigley is maybe the main appeal of Linnea Quigley to her fans is that she got naked in every movie but I think that Um, it's also the fact that she was a presence that loved to be interviewed in horror mags that she put her face out there and that there was a kind of feeling with people Mm -hmm. that she was one of them Mm -hmm. in the sense that like oh wow this person is very accessible in a way that someone like Barbara Steele or Jamie Lee Curtis isn't because they would want to throw these kind of like shackles of being a scream queen off well Linnea Quigley she just embraced it and she loved it and she would just put herself out there but yeah there's one other person I kind of want to talk about because this week I just watched Lorna the Exorcist by the great Jess Franco and of course like so many of his movies it stars his partner in Art and Life, Lena Romay, who uh, is one of the nakedest actresses ever. Uh, and I mean, like, if you call Linnea Romay a scream queen, which you can, yeah. because she appears in a lot of horror films, it's weird because, like, she mostly did that only in Jess Franco films. Yeah. And because she uh, was in a relationship with him. And as far as everybody else, as far as what I've read about her, she was very shy. 
as well, which really? is crazy when you watch her movies. Yes. Because I always assumed that she and Jess Franco had this strange relationship of he's the voyeur, she's the exhibitionist. I think they did, but at the same time, like in her day-to-day life, most people, when they talk to her, mm-hmm. was she was the one that was like, she was very friendly and charming, but she isn't someone like Linnea Quigley who's like, whoa, I'm big and I'm out there. And she kind of took a step back, which is crazy when you watch her movies because... So uh, as a... and, and I mean, I enjoyed her, by the way, in, in Lorne of the Exorcist. I mean, not just for the, the obvious... Mm-hmm reasons mm. but because i think when she when she becomes inhabited at the end of the movie spoiler when she becomes inhabited with the spirit of this demon woman like she really throws herself into the performance and she's got like big crazy eyes and and is, is a very aggressive screen presence well when we're talking about like again the way that these women look and we have to because that's how they were defined the scream yeah. queens it's like um, barbara Steele is very angular and she looks like marble and so does um jamie lee curtis and Linnea quigley in different ways mm-hmm. L- lena romay looks like more of the girl next door i would say right. is that she's very pretty but she's not that like kind of cut definition of what movies have led us to believe pretty is supposed to be yeah and she keeps a very girl next door Mm -hmm. like like innocence to her like she her appeal is she's part innocent and part just like totally uninhibited yeah but Um, i think that's uh linear is a good thing to bring up because it is like the extreme of that idea of like the woman who would star in this i mean linear romay and just franco that's almost to the point of just pornography I think right? they did pornography. They did do fact, pornography yeah. together. And it just happens that she, because Jeff Franco made so many movies, she ended up starring in a bunch of uh, vampire films as well. Most famously... Female Vampire, Yeah, that's right. Called? Female yeah. Vampire. I was getting confused with Vampire Lesbo, so I was like, wait, which one is there, it again? I know. It's very hard to keep his movies apart. But, you know, I think one of the reasons we wanted to talk about Scream Queens was because we were interested in exploring some women in horror Especially as actors, yeah. For this. And... You know, talking about Linnea Quigley and talking about Barbara Lena, Steel, Rome- Lena yeah. Romay, Barbara Steele, or even just the archetype itself, like it is problematic. Yeah, well, you know? again, it's very dismissive. And the role that women have in these films is under the gaze of men, men being in control, yeah. men that are producing, men that are watching these films, and they're supposed to fall into these boxes of what men want. Yeah. And I mean, at the same time, though, like you can't dismiss what these women bring to these movies as well. Um, I mean, like, the final girl, uh, its defenders will jump on the fact that it does put women in a position of power by the end of the film, and that they do come out on top, which is 100% true. But to get there, they need to be kind of exploited and terrified Mm -hmm. before they can rise up and take control of the situation, barely after all of their friends have died. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't think we've talked about a movie on this episode that was directed by a woman. Can you think of any slasher films that are kind of of this era or mm-hmm. that have a popular scream queen in, in them that was directed by a woman. I mean, I can think of some slashers uh, that were directed by women like home sweet home, mm-hmm. um, the ladies club, but none of them really had like that star in it. And a lot of them were done independently. The like ultimate version of scream queen slasher films directed by women is the slumber party massacre series yeah yeah because uh those were all directed by women each one a different uh person they do have the kind of archetypal scream queen presence in them and they have some very gazy scenes yes they do women in the shower but also 
a very satirical scenes, like right in your face, like whether it be the first one where the guy has the weapon between his legs right. or whether it be the second one where the killer is represented as the supernatural presence who has an electric guitar, a sign of masculinity with a drill on the top. <laughs> like uh, those are really fun pokes at the genre while still working as genre films. I mean, also the Sorority House Massacre films, which are an offshot of that. The first one is directed by a woman as well, but Sorority House Massacre films would then be taken on by people like Jim Wynorski, who would then spin them off into his own direction, which is a bummer. And before we leave this topic, I think of The Scream Queen as being a 1980s phenomenon. Like, are there any people working now that you would think of as a current Scream Queen? Uh... Well, the thing about Scream Queens is that they tend to, at this point in time, work in, like, lower-budget fare, I would mm. say. I mean, you could definitely, like, highlight people like the star of Happy Death Day, which is a slasher film. But as far as people that make it, like, their trademark... They often work in like trauma films or like little horror films, like whether it be uh, Debbie uh, Rochon or uh, Tiffany Shepis. They're people that have come up usually in the early 2000s and have used that kind of popularity to continue to appear in like low budget stuff, usually in like one or two day roles. Mm-hmm. It's unfortunate that like Scream Queens, when you're talking about Jamie Lee Curtis, you assume that like, oh, well, they're going to like star in these films and that will be like their trademark they'll be the Cary Grant of the slasher horror film uh, women role Mm -hmm. but unfortunately that's not the truth they were often relegated to very subpar parts in very cheap movies most of the time in supporting roles Mm -hmm. and it's difficult to find like starring roles for these women I mean Linnea Quigley did a bunch of David Dakota ones like uh, he did some thrillers and stuff like that that were released by Vinegar Syndrome but her career like all of these other women that I mentioned that continue to work like, they have 250 IMDb credits, but they're all in, like, zero-budget horror films that you may stumble on VOD, but probably not. Mm-hmm. Well, we shut the book on Shocktober for another year. Awoo! Awoo! That is a lazy werewolf, yeah. But we still talked about a horror film on our Patreon this week. And perhaps another example of a Scream Queen, I don't know, something tangentially related to this topic, definitely something related to the male gaze in film. Mm -hmm. It's the 1980 classic, question mark, I Spit on Your Grave. Yes, infamous film, I would say. Yeah. Uh, So you can listen to us talk about that very tricky subject matter by paying $5 a month. Um, You'll get that episode and you'll get our entire back catalog. Keep that shit behind a paywall. That's what I say. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd just like to know that uh, Patreon subscribers, in a few weeks, we will pick someone to pick a fan episode. Now, we have one coming up, a Patreon episode, which is going to be the things that we would suggest if we were going to start a film society. But after that, we want you to pick one. So become a Patreon subscriber now and get into this contest. And you know what? I'll throw in a copy of Impossible Horror as well, whoever gets picked. My new feature film, which was just released on Blu-ray. Excellent. Uh, Will Sloan is in it. It's, um, again, a feature-length horror love letter. Uh, It's about two women who, every night, they hear a scream uh, in their neighborhood. They don't know where it's coming from, so they decide to hunt it down and find out that it may be a very supernatural and perhaps cosmic horror that they're going to have to deal with. The Blu-ray is something that's been a long time coming. This film took up four years of my life. Uh, It has six commentary tracks, an amazing documentary 
uh, made up of fly of the wall footage that was shot and edited by uh, my partner, Emily Milling, who was a producer on the film. It has deleted scenes. Uh, me and uh, the producer, Nate Wilson, talking about our inspirations. Tons of stuff. And it's only 20 bucks. And you can get it by going to www.impossiblehorror.com. And if you put in the code Important Cinema Club, you will get a 10% discount. So, uh, again, that's impossiblehorror.com. Uh, buy it now, please. Just please buy it now. You'll enjoy it. You will enjoy yeah. it. Okay, so as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And the first letter is from Brandon Leddit from Swamp Flicks. Uh, very loyal listener. Thanks for sending a letter. I've been thinking about your general dismissal of the Todd Browning's Dracula film for the last few weeks. This is an opinion I used to share, and one I hear echoed often amongst my horror-loving friends. I recently fallen in love with the film on Revisit, however, after watching it with the Philip Glass score that was composed to accompany it in its 1998 reissue. The original Dracula feels incredibly dull without its lost soundtrack, and I love that instead of hiring someone to recreate the vibe of the music that would have accompanied it, Universal just paid Glass to do whatever he wanted at top volume volume in the mix in a way that was completely overwhelms the picture, and in my opinion, elevates it significantly. When our local repertory theater was screening Dracula last week, I couldn't muster up the enthusiasm to go, but if they were playing the Philip Glass scored reissue, I would have been there in a heartbeat. Do you have any thoughts on how the Philip Glass scored version of Dracula compares to the musicless version? Additionally, can you think of any other film that have been substantially transformed after the fact by an improved soundtrack? Uh, Brandon let it swamp flicks. Well, I should say that I actually do like the Todd Browning Dracula, although for many years I had that, I guess, dismissive attitude towards it. But my attitude towards it changed about a year ago when I watched it on Blu-ray. It looks really good on Blu-ray and it kind of brings out that um, German expressionist influence that it has. I mean, the problem with the Todd Browning Dracula is like it really slows in the second half. Mm -hmm. But I think the fact that it has aged... Like, it's getting to a point where it's old enough that there's a certain creakiness to it that sort of adds to the otherworldly quality of it that I respond to. Well, Dracula is aesthetically so pleasing so when you watch it on blu-ray and you get those details of the set you get to see every one of the spines on that armadillo yeah you're like wow this is beautiful and you have that bella lugosi performance at its center mm -hmm. it's just not as dramatically compelling as the other universal monster pictures are but it is held as this classic status which is why i think people like me and other people can sound very dismissive when they talk about it yeah uh but there's a reason that it's so well loved by tons of people whether it be now or people that when it came out because for a long time that Dracula film like people will talk very enthusiastically about the fact that like in the death kiss the actors are back on screen together again <laughs> so like I can understand especially when people don't like it people watching going well no this is good how can they not like this well there are a lot of things in the second half of Dracula that are a little baffling to me like yeah. the fact they don't kill him on screen yes I know you know the fact that you don't see him you don't see him see his reflection or lack thereof in the mirror before he knocks it down. Like, there's so many things that are, in the second half, kind of badly directed. It's just because so. you want to see Bella Lugosi, just pure Lugosi yeah. doing his thing. And, like, I think a lot of what's great about the Todd Browning Dracula is not Todd Browning. Mm -hmm. It's, like, Carl Freund. Yeah, or the set design. Or the set design, or, or Bella Lugosi. Uh, but as far as films that changed based on the soundtrack, what's interesting about film is that for a long time, you know, it was whoever made the soundtrack on the day mm -hmm. in the theater that you were going to get, whether it be played on an organ or whether it be just played on a shitty rinky-dink piano. Mm -hmm. It was like whatever, like, the person accompanying the film brought to it 
that's the backbone that it would have. Well, I've seen a lot of silent movies on bad public domain VHS or DVDs where like you could see a lot of like really early Charlie Chaplin movies. Like, uh, rinky dink MIDI scores. Yeah, mi- MIDI scores or Madison, the DVD company Madison used to put out Charlie Chaplin movies and they'd have this weird Dixieland jazz <laughs> sound to them. Or I remember seeing the Gold Rush for the first time with this dirge-like organ score that totally didn't suit it at all. Um and I mean that that still continues. You know, I've seen silent films that have I think like too modern a score mm-hmm. and it kind of takes me out of it. Like, well, when you watch something like uh, Kino's releases of Faust, mm-hmm. um, F.W. Murnau's film, there's different scores you can listen and they change the experience so radically, yeah. especially something like that, that is very dramatically structured, but its visuals are so compelling as well. Yeah. Maybe it's the way we've been trained is that like, we expect music to not Mickey Mouse all the time, but to be so symbiotic with the picture that we're seeing that it's difficult for us to kind of take a movie on its own, whatever the music is. You know, one of the things I like about the Italian exploitation movies is a lot of them... The scores. The scores are so great, but oftentimes the scores would be written without even watching the movie. All those uh, Bruno Nicolai scores that are like, Mm -hmm. you know, famously Cannibal Holocaust, which has a beautiful score that you would never associate with that film until you see the images and the sound melded together. And you're like, oh yeah, this is perfect. Oh, by the way, another example is Battleship Potemkin. You know, it originally had that musical score in the 20s that was lost for many years by, I forget who the composer was, but it was a very rousing score. And for many years, the movie would play to just, you know, dirge-like organ music. And then when they rediscovered this old score, they were like, oh, it's an action movie, <laughs> you know? And the, But you know what I've always wanted to see? The last time I watched Super Mario Brothers... Uh, the bomb oh, boss is yeah because it has that um, yeah and you want to see like the industrial like heavy metal not this is a goofy movie score yeah I want to hear a Kraftwerk score or I yeah. want to hear a Goblin score because that's what it should have yeah. those visuals are supposed to be associated yeah it was um, Alan Silvestri who wrote the Super Mario Brothers score who's a very good composer who's obviously forced to like you gotta make this lighter you gotta make it more fun my mm. friend uh, Pierce Dirks has talked for years about like isolating sequences of that film that only have score and like doing that kind of hard industrial score oh, to that film. Okay, I'm glad he feels the same yeah, way. We yeah, we all watch it together and that's exactly what we thought is like, this score is killing this movie yeah. and that it would probably feel much different if it had like a more kind of gloomy score, which is what these filmmakers are obviously going for. Mm-hmm. The thing with public domain and older silent films is that they're available all over the internet. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, usually the qualities are not that good, and they're going to have that shitty Madison score on them. Mm-hmm. Is that if you really want to see a silent film, hunt down the DVD or Blu-ray because most often they'll have multiple different versions of scores that you can listen to. And you'll also get like the best picture quality. And that's very important on those. Yeah. And sometimes the correct frame rate, because you mm-hmm. go on YouTube yeah. and watch these silent films, and they're in the wrong frame rate. And you wouldn't know. You'll be like, ah, these old pictures, they're all jerky and stuff like that. It's like, no, they're not being uh, shown correctly. And that's very important with those kind of pictures as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so thank you very much for the letter. Uh, and the next one is from Valerie. And she goes, hey, Justin and Will. As you two became film lovers, were there any classic films that you were surprised how much you loved them? I recently saw Casablanca in my film history course. It's been so referenced in pop culture as one of the best movies ever made, and I honestly couldn't believe how much it lived up to the hype. Was there any movies that either of you had a familiar reaction to? Well, I remember when I was 12 years old, 
after putting it off for a long time, I rented a little movie from the library. A long time. Called, 12 years old. You know, uh, like it felt like a long time <laughs> yeah, at the time. Yeah. Like a year feels long. <laughs> yep. But I, I rented a little movie called Citizen Kane from uh, the library. I remember seeing it for the first time as well when I got that two disc uh, special edition. With the Roger Ebert commentary. Yep. Yeah. And I was so uh, enraptured by it. And I was surprised how entertaining it was. I had the like, same feeling. Like yeah. right from that opening newsreel where it kind of blew my mind that they're going to tell the whole story in this opening newsreel before or even afterwards when it cuts to like them in the darkness and you can't see their faces and you're like well what is this it's so like visually compelling and even like right from the get-go like show off shots like the camera panning through the window and over the table and then you learn later on like split the table like Citizen Kane's one of those movies that if people go like eh this is boring you assume like well, then movies are not for yeah, you. Yeah, you're not that, looking at what's yeah. on screen. <laughs> because uh, if you're not impressed by just even the stylistic panache of Citizen Kane, man, I feel really bad mm. for you. Like, Hollywood films, there's an association when you're younger that they're going to be boring and dull and they won't live up to what movies are now. But then you watch, like, a John Ford film and you're like, oh, no, like, there's a reason these films are classic. Like, I've said this a bunch of times, but, like, they're genuinely good. Like, you watch something like uh, The Man Who Shot uh, Liberty Valance and you're like, ah. Oh, Whoa, that's that's a good movie. John Ford was another one that I put off for a long time until... I mean, really, I got into John Ford after I graduated university. Mm-hmm. And I, re- I went through a John Ford kick of just watching all these movies. And it felt like, like God, there's... There- these are so great and there are so many of them. I can't can't believe it. And like, they just always seem to me like white bread. It's like they are, you know, monuments from from another time. That's what it felt like. But speaking of like foreign uh, films, I remember seeing last year at Marion Bad, uh, Alain René's Mm -hmm. film and just being blown away by it in a way that I really didn't expect. And I was like, whoa! And that's what you're always hunting for when you watch all these classics is for a film to be like, to just like shoot your hair back and unfortunately it happens a lot less than I would like it to happen but like last year at Marion Bad is one that's stuck in my memory as one that's like this is amazing I could watch it right away again oh well maybe another one for me like that was Jean Delman mm-hmm. which I remember going to in university almost as a joke because yeah. I, I heard what it was about and it just seemed ridiculous that this was an actual movie and I thought well maybe I'll see an hour of this and I was very compelled by it Mm -hmm. yeah and the letter continues a request that i have is as a future topic is robert zemeckis his late career obsession with cgi especially after gump has always confused me plus his early work with bob gale is often overlooked while on topic i'll say 1941 maybe overlong mess that has some incredibly problematic elements but i do think that some of the wartime paranoia jokes are pretty funny proud patron of both important cinema club and michael and us sincerely valerie thank you very much uh as far as 1941 goes we did an episode on steven spielberg where i valiantly bring a defense to 1941 if you haven't listened to that i would check it out and robert zemeckis did we do a robert zemeckis patreon episode i don't think we ever did no, no but that's definitely someone i feel like would be a Patreon episode because I mean, I don't love him. Yeah. That's the problem is that like, it's tough to get really like fired up about him. Now I do love used cars. I love Uh, who framed Roger. I loved who framed Roger rabbit. I really like, I want to hold your hand, which are all the Bob Gale films. Mm -hmm. And then like, I don't know what happened to Robert Zemeckis hearing people talk about him. It seems like he got obsessed with the idea of pulling one or two magic tricks per film. Mm -hmm. And like, that's what he loves to do, whether it be the shot in contact where the person's running toward the uh, mirror and it pulls back to reveal that it is in a mirror or um, like What Lies Beneath, that one long take that happens at the end. And I think that like his films suffer for that. Like they sometimes feel lifeless and not that hot. But the anarchic, like anything goes um, 
Robert Zemeckis, who made those early films and did write 1941. I love that Robert Zemeckis, and I wish he'd come back, but I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, I know that his turn towards these big CGI cartoons was sad for a lot of people, but it didn't break my heart or anything. I mean, like, at that point, he had made, like, Forrest Gump, and... But, like, where's the Robert Zemeckis who made Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Yeah. Like, that film is insanely good. I think he would tell you that it's the same Robert Zemeckis who made The Walk. And I'd be like, no, it's not. I think he would say, look, I'm pushing the envelope with IMAX. I'm trying to do all sorts of crazy (sighs) things. I guess. I mean, The Walk is fine. Um, It's got got 30 good minutes. Yeah, The Flight is pretty good, the drama he made with uh, Denzel Washington. Mm -hmm. But again, like Robert Zemeckis is someone who has very publicly said that he has contempt for his audiences. Well, he would often say that he wants to reveal the whole plot in his trailers because he, according to some market research he saw, people want to know the whole plot going into a movie. And he still does that in like his new movie starring Steve Carell that is based on that Marwin Call, Marwin Call yeah. a documentary, shows the entire plot and every beat in that trailer. Well, Castaway shows Tom Hanks being rescued from the <laughs> island. It does. It's like, why would you do that? I don't know. Uh, it almost feels as if like Robert Zemeckis wanted to be like that crazy kid and eventually films like like Forrest Gump showed him, well, my audience is dumb and they just want things that are easy and popular. So I'm going to just give them that. I'm going to make the best easy and popular thing that you can make. And then I'll make a movie like A Christmas Carol starring Jim Carrey that will be completely unwatchable. Like you try to watch it. It's awful. I have seen it. actually. Uh, you know what? I have a soft spot, which I watched it, I think last year for the Polar Express, because it does feel like crazy Zemeckis at moments. But like a lot of recent Zemeckis films, they just kind of peter down. They don't have climaxes. It just runs out of steam. I think the Polar Express, while far from a great or, you know, barely even a good movie, Movie, mm-hmm. I think captures a bit of the melancholy tone of the book. It also captures your soul when you look in those dead eyes of all the characters. It's also absurdly padded. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. It's uh, actually not even a good movie. Yet. Uh, uh, well, thanks for the letter, Valerie. I can guarantee you we're going to talk about Zemeckis at some point. Uh, probably on a Patreon episode. Sure. Who Frame Roger Rabbit? Give yeah, me a reason yeah. to watch it again. I'd like to watch that. So you can still send us letters at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. We really appreciate it. And we also really appreciate it when you go to filmtrap.com to read um, the write ups to these reviews and just check up on the site. I'm starting to write a lot more. So you'll find more uncut Justin the Clue content. And you can also follow me on Twitter. It's DeClue J, D E C L O U X J. I'm uh, Will Sloan ESQ. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter. It's Important Cinema Club is our name. I believe it's like at IMPRT Cinema Club. Sure. I really struggled to get that Important Cinema Club in there. And follow me on Letterboxd at uh, Justin McClue. Same last name spelling. You can see all the movies that we're watching. And you can also easily guess what our next topic is going to be before we release the episode. Because I'll be watching the same thing of a bunch of people. So next week, we're doing something that, oh man, I thought this day would never come. The Other Side of the Wind, Orson Welles' legendary last movie is finally being released by Netflix. And to celebrate this occasion, we're looking at Orson Welles' right-hand man in his later years, the cinematographer Gary Graver. But not just a cinematographer, he was also a director of many... Pornography. Pornography and often exploitation films. But he is a very essential collaborator of Orson Welles. Also an essential collaborator to Fred Olin Ray, mm-hmm. who he was best friends with. And Gary Graver is one of those figures that, like, I wish he was more popular because he's a man who... he I don't want to say he died destitute, but he essentially, like, 
attached himself to Orson Welles throughout the last years of Orson Welles' life. When Orson Welles passed away, he just tried to get this other side of the wind out there so finally all this work that he did would finally have value and he could be recognized beyond a filmmaker who did the cinematography for some Al Adamson biker pictures Mm -hmm. and it never happened Mm -hmm. and he passed away before the other side of the wind could be completed and that it could be held up in the high regard that he definitely deserved and he devoted so much of his life to Orson Welles so much on call destroyed marriages relationships with his children Mm -hmm. so we're going to be watching um, some Gary Graver directed pictures I think probably trick or treat because it's the season sure and also 3 a.m which is the porn movie he made, which was famously famously partly edited by Orson Welles. Mm-hmm. At least one scene was edited by Orson Welles. And the crazy thing about Gary Graver is he has like hundreds of cinematography credits, not all of them pornography, like all kinds of movies. He's worked with many directors you've heard of, like Ron Howard. You yep, know. he did Grand Theft Auto for Ron That's Howard. Right. That's right. And uh, he directed dozens and dozens of films, all of them, according to him, that were taken out of his hands and completely re-edited. Mm-hmm. So... That's what we're going to be talking about next week. And until then, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. I was in Montreal for a few days this week. And I, while I was there, I went to the Scotiabank Cinema there to mm-hmm. see Halloween. And I realized when I was there that this was the theater where in 2007 I saw Spider-Man 3. <laughs> and I hadn't been to the theater in uh, how many years is that now? 11 years? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, and it just felt so so exciting. Here I am in this... Why had you seen Spider-Man 3 in Montreal? Well, because I went with my dad to Montreal. I think we were looking at universities, and I was looking at McGill. Okay. And we were just there for a few days, father and son, and I went out one night to see Spider-Man 3, which was the big movie that weekend. And uh, I don't know, have you ever, have you ever found yourself at a uh, movie theater that was imbued with some symbolic significance like that. When I went to New York with Impossible Horror uh, the first night, uh, I literally went by myself at 11.30 p.m. at night on 42nd Street to go see a Filipino kung fu film called By Bust. Not to be confused with Bang Bus, which it sounds very much like. Uh, I got my hopes up. And it was just like the idea of going to see this movie in a theater that was obviously completely gutted and kind of redone. But to be in this building on 42nd Street to see a movie, I was by myself until 30 minutes in a woman that looked uh, a little bit on the rocky side, sat down and started drinking and some teens an hour in came and sat behind me. And I'm like, man, I'm watching a Filipino martial arts picture in this theater on 42nd Street. Ah, this feels good. It's not, you know, the real 42nd Street, but it's the spirit is there. So I saw Inherent Vice on at the 42nd Street AMC on Boxing Day. Mm-hmm. And the audience was mostly people who were shut out of either Into the Woods or Unbroken. Yeah. And this is not the movie they wanted to see. Not the movie they wanted to see. And so fully two-thirds of the audience walked out, loudly contemptuous of Inherent Vice. And I did kind of feel a bit like, well, I guess this is a bit of the grindhouse experience. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And as far as theaters that I have, like, nostalgia for, I mean, like, the Bloor Cinema is where I went to in Toronto when I first moved here and where I made all my friends and I did a bunch of stuff there. It doesn't really exist anymore. It was, like, yeah. gutted and it was replaced by the Hot Doc Theater that play mostly documentaries. Uh, gentrification. <laughs> I haven't been there in years. Mm. Uh, I think the last thing I saw was a documentary in the middle of the day on 
The Thief and the Cobbler, the famous um, animation project by the guy who did the animation on Roger Rabbit. I mean, I don't know if the uh, Scotiabank in Montreal quite has the the same nostalgic yeah. uh, feel for me as the Bloor, but uh, I have to say, while I was there, I felt moved in a way that the theater was still there. Yeah, yeah it's just because like so much changes in eleven years that I found myself in this theater, and it's like. Well, okay, at least this is here from 11 years ago. There was a theater uh, in Orleans where I grew up uh, that was in a strip mall, and it was a Cineplex theater. And I just, I hadn't thought about it in a decade, but I can so vividly remember, like, where it was, like, the stairs going up to it, the way the theater was, like, laid out. Like, this is the theater that we always went to, and it's been, like, burned in my memory, and I'm 100% sure it doesn't exist anymore. Oh, well, there's a theater like that for me that same summer in 2007, my family moved to Kitchener before I went off to university. Oh, the Rush Hour 2 th- theater, right? The Rush Hour 3 theater. Oh, boy. I've, I've written and rhapsodized about this theater many times. It was the Fairway Cinema on, on Fairway Avenue. And I used to, you know, I was I was very glum from having moved to this strange city. And basically all I had in my power to do was just ride my bike to this theater and see whatever was playing. And so I saw Rush Hour 3 and I saw War with Jet Li. <laughs> saw the Simpsons movie, you know, Hairspray. Oh, boy. I, I, Hairspray's fun. Hairspray's fine, but like I just saw whatever was. Well, okay, a year later I saw Mummy, The Tomb of the Dragon. Oh Emperor. boy! Like I saw so much. I will only want to see the uh, second sequel to films, <laughs> not no original or sequels, just the third part in a series. Saw so much garbage to that theater, and it, it's gone now. And what was great about that theater was it was a real like. Real shitty. Was theater. it a multiplex theater? Yeah, it was a multiplex, but it was just a real shitty strip. You know, mall we still theater. have those kind of strip mallish theaters where on Tuesdays you can pay five bucks. The Carlton, yeah, that's right downtown Toronto, or even Market Square, which is the higher up version of the Carlton because it's the same brand, but it's down underground, so no one can use their phones. We live in a city that's so rich with opportunity to see movies, mm-hmm. like considering how many theaters that we can still see movies for five dollars on Tuesdays, <laughs> and then we have so many like art house theaters, and then we sit here being like, huh, nothing to go see yeah 